is in its nature progressive, and eventually a divergence between them, impossible to conceal, must take place. A sort of sense of historical inevitability. There has to be a disjunction between these two modes. One static, uh, undynamic, the other forward-looking, transforming, and changing all the time. There has to be a conflict between them. Um, Andrew Dixon White, in all modern history, interference with science in the supposed interest of religion, no matter how conscientious such interference may have been, has resulted in direct e- in the direct evils both to religion and to science, and invariably. And on the other hand, un- all untraveled, trammeled scientific investigation no matter how dangerous to religion some of its stages may have seemed for the time to be, has invariably resulted in the highest good, both of religion and of science. Here's clearly someone who did not live through an atomic warfare, if he thinks of an untrammeled good from, uh, from scientific inquiry. Now, it's interesting that both of these were um, Christians of some sort. Um, uh, Draper was a I think a member of Methodist Church and um, Andrew Dixon White uh, was also not an opponent of religion, but they both were looking for the emancipation of science from any kind of religious dominance. Now, there might be still something to that story, but I think as Stephen will go on to show in uh, what he'll be talking about with respect to bioethics and also artificial intelligence, you might wonder if it's safe to leave all these questions purely in the hands of a scientific establishment or a scientific elite. Now, this idea is, is, I still think, the most common one that we find on the streets uh, today, and it's articulated pretty well, I think, by uh, Richard Dawkins himself. Faith, he he wrote some years ago, uh, seems to me to qualify as a kind of mental illness. I think a case can be made that faith is one of the world's greatest evils, comparable to the smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. Well, I think that's one way of telling the story of science and religion. Is it the only way? Uh, well, I don't think so. Other people have, other historians and the like, have tried to emphasize the cooperation that science has received uh, from a religion. Uh, I restrict myself here to uh, Christianity, but, I mean, I do think that um, Islam has had some uh, positive uh, uh, dimensions to, I suppose, uh, supporting scientific enterprises. Um, Judaism, of course, too. Uh, but cooperation, I think, from the Christian uh, uh, world uh, dates at least um, from medieval period and uh, certainly received quite a boost from the period of the, of the Reformation. I mean, an example of this would be uh, the extent to which um, Puritans became very interested in finding out about the natural world. And um, here's a case of uh, where a number of Puritans are, I, I suppose, is that a comma, Tom, are, are uh, uh, following the trajectory of it. You can't see the bottom of it uh, too well uh, because the slide's rather dark, but you can see them using a cross staff here, and there's another one in the middle with a cross staff and so on, uh, following the tra- trajectory and the angle of declination of the star and so on. Um, a number of, of uh, things that are interesting. The, the great cotton mather, major figure in the witch trials in Salem um, in the 17th century in New England, had already an established reputation as a scientist. 
and was elected to fellowship of the Royal Society and uh, produced this particular work here, uh, a collection of the best discoveries in nature. He was very enthusiastic for inoculation and uh, also developed uh, quite a lot of scientific research on plant and other forms of hybridization and so on, was deeply involved with scientific enterprises. Uh, In fact, there was a book came out in the early part of the 20th century by Robert Merton, um, famous sociologist, I think, in Boston, who argued that science received um, a huge impetus from the development of Puritanism um, in England in the 17th century. Uh, A thesis, I think, that can be challenged in some way, but not, I think, completely obliterated. And then um, uh, contemporary historian John Morgan uh, brought out uh, this book some years ago called Godly Learning, uh, in which he showed that a Puritan attitude towards um, uh, self-discipline, the need for education, and uh, redeeming the world underlay quite a number of inquiries into natural history and natural philosophy more generally. So, I mean, another way to think about the relationship is a more creative one, one that's going to to emphasize something about the congruence uh, between science and religion. Let me give you an example of how this worked out. Now, this is... um, This is just a detail from a very famous astronomical clock in Strasbourg, Um, a clock that was uh, huge um, and uh, was able to um, regulate itself, kept extremely good time, and little figures would come out on the hour um, and and, uh, dying a bell and so forth and so on. And this led um, the great uh, 17th century natural philosopher Robert Boyle to have this to say which I think shows the connection between the two. The world is like a rare clock, such as that at Strasbourg, where all the things are so skillfully contrived that the engine being once set a-moving, all the things proceed according to the artificer's first design and the motions of the little statutes that at such hours perform these or those things do not require the peculiar interposing of the artificer or any intellect against uh, agent employed by him, but perform their functions upon particular occasions by virtue of the general and primitive contrivance of the whole engine. What Boyle is saying here is that the universe is like a clock, been set up by the Creator, who doesn't need to interfere every time he wants something done. He has set the system going in such a law-abiding way that it is a manifestation of his design that the system works, as it were, almost like a machine. Now, of course, whether that's an adequate theology or not is a hugely debatable question. I'm somewhat skeptical of it myself. But the great Robert Boyle was a Christian natural philosopher and Christian gentleman, and like Isaac Newton, had absolutely no intention of developing natural philosophy in antagonism to, uh, to religious explanations. I mean, I mean uh, Isaac Newton himself famously wrote far, far more on the books of Daniel and Revelation than he ever did in writing natural philosophy or his theories of gravitational attraction or optics or any of those things. He was massively interested in biblical prophecy and had no intention at all of challenging uh, the Christian religion. Rather, he wanted to, to express the view that he was exploring the mind of the architect 
who had made such a universe as that in which we live. Now, another, another way I think that has become quite popular is to, is to make an argument that science and religion, science and Christianity, are two different kinds of inquiry. That they are, as it were, two regions. There are the, there's the sphere over which the theological and the religious hold sway, and then there's the sphere of material things and matter which science delves into and inquires through its, its various mechanisms. Two regions, two zones, two territories, and the really good thing to do is to keep them apart. I suppose one of the best examples of this is uh, uh, the great Stephen Jay Gould, the Harvard paleontologist who wrote this, I think, I think rather challenging book, Stephen Jay Gould, Rocks of Ages, in which he said that science and religion occupy two different spheres. He called this noma, non-overlapping magisteria. Non-overlapping magisteria. Religion does one, science does the other, but they never really come into contact. Why? They're dealing with different things, they're inquiring into different sorts of principles, and there's no reason why they should conflict. They complement each other because they're answering different kinds of questions. Now, I have to say for myself, I find all of these first three models desperately unsatisfactory. I think that they're interesting, uh, common, but I don't think they begin to get to some of the more exciting ways that we really should think about science and religion historically. So I want to share two other, let's call them historical models, uh, ones that I feel a certain attraction for, though I think they're challenging in their own ways too, before I move on to the scientism part of what I want to get, uh, get on to tonight. Competition. Now, when I say a competition between uh, these two, uh, these two um, I don't know what you call them, phenomena, Christianity and science, what I'm really talking about here is, is not so much a competition between religion and science, but I'm thinking about a social competition between clergymen and natural scientists. In other words, I'm moving from the conceptual into the social sphere, a struggle between two types of people in society. Let me illustrate this by a remarkably interesting article with a strange title by uh, Frank uh, Miller-Turner, the Yale historian. I had the privilege of meeting Frank, actually, uh, a few years before his death. I think it was in Berkeley, California. He'd written this really interesting article, Rainfall plagues and the Prince of Wales. Brilliant title. I wish I could write an article with that, that sort of title. So here's the story. Remember, I'm looking for competition here. I'm looking for social competition. Victorian society was plagued, as it were, three major issues um, that confronted society. One was too much rainfall. A few years, bad harvests. And so there was a crisis, an agricultural crisis, about feeding people and about harvest. Secondly, there was cattle plague, another agricultural crisis where, of course, just like um, the culling of, of uh, mad cow disease and things of that sort, cattle plague was bringing about very, very poor uh, conditions. It was a second challenge 
rainfall plagues. And then the Prince of Wales, of course, had picked up typhoid and his life was in danger. Now what Prime Miller Turner says about this is this, this presented society with a challenge. And that challenge was, to whom should the society turn to answer these questions, to get solutions? Should they turn to what the clergy were calling for, a day of prayer? Or should they turn to the new professionals, medical and scientific and agricultural? He thinks of this as a social struggle between two competing powers. Who's going to win out? Who's going to have that dominant say in what a society should do in a time of crisis? Should they turn to prayer? Or should they turn to the vet? Should they turn to the medical person? Um, should they turn to agricultural experts? Now, if we think of it that way, I don't think there's much doubt who has won out. Whenever you're not feeling too well, what do you do? You phone up Steve and say, can you call a day of prayer in Fitzroy so you get over this flu? Or do you lift your telephone and ring the GP? Because the assumption is that in that sort of struggle, you're better going to the professional. And what Frank Miller Turner says is that we often confuse a struggle between science and religion with a struggle between these two professional groups in society. That is to say, clergymen, or the religious life, or the scientific practitioner. And I guess in those terms, as far as social power and social control is concerned, I don't think there's any doubt about who's won out, who has the social prestige in our society. Um, it's likely to be professional scientists of one sort um, or another. Now, it's easy to confuse this as a, as, as a dispute between science and religion. He thinks of it more as a social struggle for trying to gain power in Victorian society. So thinking of, the, thinking of the social dimensions of science and religion is not unimportant when we get to contemporary debates as well. You've got to say to yourself, is this purely a debate between science and faith, or is there something else going on? Are there social interests at stake? Are people advancing some other kind of agenda, no matter which side of the, the debate uh, they're on? Now, the, the, the final, uh, for this point of it anyway, the, the, the final model that I think is quite interesting is um, a yet more complicated one that's been put forward by uh, initially um, a Marxist um, historian of science, Robert, Robert Young, who had been quite influenced, I think, by uh, uh, Joseph Needham and, and, and people of that sort. And his, his um, view is that there's no competition at all here. There's no uh, struggle, there's no conflict, because at a deep level, there's a profound continuity between science and religion. Both are manipulating society for their own ends. Here's an example that he uses, and you can see what you think about it. Late 18th and the early 19th century, uh, Britain, of course, was a hugely divided society. Divided society in terms of class, rich and poor, poverty and the like. So there was a social hierarchy. And how was that justified? How was that described in the early part of the 19th and the late 18th century? Simple. God had made it that way. 
God had made society in such a way that they were rich and poor and so on. But by the time you get into the latter part of the 19th century, it's not, it's not so much God who's done it, it's nature who's done it. Nature has made certain people rich and certain people poor. And what you have is a similar social philosophy underlining, underlaying uh, both of these perspectives. Now, in case you think I'm making it up, I want to refer to a hymn. Maybe, Steve, you've talked about this hymn from time to time. Um, Cecil Francis Alexander's hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful, All Creatures Great and Small. And you all know what the verse is going to be here, so I'll just get on with it quite quickly. But the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. Second part of the 19th century, what would you say? The rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, natural selection made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. Darwinism made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. This is what this Marxist wants to say. There's a profound continuity. Church was after maintaining its own interests. Science is doing the same thing, justifying the social order. One in the language of nature, the other in the language of God. A lesson there for all of us to watch watch what we're baptizing as part of a culture. Well, now, all of this at least shows to me that conflict is not the only way to think about this problem. Uh, Conflict is really, in some sense, a fairly sort of simple-minded way to go about thinking about the relationship between science and faith. Much more complicated, much more complex, um, and much less caricature if once you start to push into some of these, some of these uh, narratives. But still, right up to the present day, conflict really does animate a huge amount of thinking about science and, and faith. Indeed, conflict seems to be such that people are willing to find conflict where it doesn't exist. I'm going to give you a couple of examples of finding conflict where it doesn't exist. Now, let me introduce you to, um, I think, perhaps the greatest philosopher of mind of the 20th century, a recently deceased man called Jerry Fodor, um, taught in uh, Rutgers University after he'd been at MIT for quite a long time. Formidable, formidable intellect, Jerry Fodor. I became such a groupie that uh, at one stage when Francis and I were in New York, I actually went to see Jerry Fodor. Boy, was that intimidating. I mean, what do you say to somebody like this? Well, Jerry Fodor had the misfortune to bring out, a few years ago, a book with this title, What Darwin Got Wrong. Now, let me be clear about this. Jerry Fodor uh, has no problem with um, the theory of evolution. He's no problem with Darwin at all. But there was one element of Darwin's theory, and I'll get into it afterwards if you want to, in discussion about his concept of nature selecting four particular features, that he had a bit of a go at this. Wow, you'd have thought the sky had fallen in. Here was a conflict where he described himself as um, a no-holds-barred, dyed-in-the-wool atheist. I'm a no-holds-barred, dyed-in-the-wool atheist. And yet the first criticism that people made of this book was that he must be Wait for it, a creationist. People who didn't like a challenge to anything in the scientific establishment described him and his co uh, and his co-author Massimo uh, Piatelli Palmarini as 
mind creationists. Fuller didn't know what to make of this, of course. But because he was challenging a scientific establishment view, they came quick and fast. The book will be picked up by the fundamentalist enemies of science. He was hallucinating, as another review said. Here are two critics without a clue. Now, Fodor is no axe to grind about religion, but simply challenging an established view of the scientific community was such that he was vilified. You really would have thought that, uh, that the sky had, uh, had fallen in. So people were looking for a conflict, thinking that he was teaming up with fundamentalists or that he was a creationist or something of that sort, because they're on the lookout for a conflict. They're on the lookout of spoiling for, for a fight. Good. I want to introduce you to Tom. You recognize this figure. A former colleague of ours at Queen's University, Keith Bennett. Keith was in the department I'm in. He's a paleobotanist and a pretty good one. He's now working at the University of um, St. Andrews. Now, Keith read a paper at the Paleontological Conference a few years ago in London, and uh, he published the article in uh, The New Scientist, and in fact, the diagram that he had made the front cover, How Chaos Theory Rules Everything. Now, as far as I know, Keith has zero interest in religion, as far as I'm aware. But he was putting forward a new way of thinking about Darwinian biology using complicated mathematics, as some of you guys will understand of chaos theory. I have no idea what it was. But um, the blogger Jerry Coyne, who is a vitriolic opponent of Christianity and blogs all the time, um, I think that if you're in this uh, game which I'm in and you haven't been vilified by Jerry, there's something wrong with you. Uh, I'm glad to say that uh, project I'm working on has already got vilified by Jerry. So, you know, I mean, that's the company I'm in. But I'm in the company of Keith Bennett here because here's Jerry, and this is what Jerry had to say about Keith Bennett's alternative view of thinking about evolution that was not particularly Darwinian. Can we just take them? It was stupid, thoughtless, rotten, hogwash, moron, drivel. So, Jerry, what do you really think? Here's someone looking for a fight where there isn't one because he thinks that there's something really important at stake for his own particular anti-religious view of, of the world. So I think that there are people who are out to, to find a conflict even when it's not there. In fact, the editor of the journal wrote back to Jerry Coyne on this to say, Bennett was not the only one to question the primacy of natural selection and macroevolution. Macro I was at Bennett's talk. The room was full of learned and eminent people. He took a few question, questions, but there were no howls of protest like yours. It's just to give that sense of the world that people live in where conflict seems to be dominating uh, quite a lot of the worldviews. What then is there a conflict and where is it? And I want to suggest the last few minutes, that there is a conflict. And I think where it really lies is in the sphere of scientism. The idea that everything about us can be explained in the language of, of science, who we are, what our values are. Everything about us can be explained in, in terms of scientific uh, thinking, particularly in terms of maybe neurobiology, 
but also the biological sciences uh, more generally. I've just picked out four, four, four points about this, and then we'll move towards um, an end and to some, some questions. Now, the first one is what I'm calling universal acid, and I'm actually not calling it that myself because the term comes from um, one of the leading philosophers uh, who is deeply, deeply antagonistic to religion and uh, deeply, deeply committed to Charles Darwin's theory as a theory of everything, Daniel, Daniel Dennett. Dennett really is an eminent, eminent philosopher and... Uh, uh, Actually, his wife's quite nice. Uh, Francis had coffee with her, I think, actually, uh, at one point. But Dan's not so nice, really. And um, he wrote this book called Darwin's Dangerous Idea. And a key idea in this is that he thinks Darwin's theory is what he calls universal acid. It eats through just about every traditional concept and leaves in its wake a revolutionized worldview. That is to say, there is nothing about us that can't be explained solely by natural selection. Uh, whether it's uh, the love of our children, uh, whether it's to do with um, why we like music, no matter what it's to do with, everything about us is purely to be described in the language of struggle for survival and natural selection. Now, needless to say, Jerry Fodor, whom I was talking about uh, more recently, uh, there is deeply, deeply um, skeptical about this. And uh, he drew up a list of the sorts of things that people have said Darwinism can explain about us. And some of these you might find quite curious, but honestly, they all come from particularly psychology textbooks. And so I'm pretty sure that uh, that Fodor's right to identify these. People think that Darwinism can explain these sorts of things. We don't approve of eating grandmother because having her around to babysit was useful in the hunter-gatherer ecology stage. Here's an account for why we don't eat our grandmothers. We like music because singing together strengthened the bond between the hunters and the gatherers. So when Chris is leading um, on Sunday morning here, he's strengthening the bond between hunters and, and gatherers, or at least that's um, how it started. We talk by making noises and not by waving our hands. That's because hunter-gatherers lived in the savanna and would have had trouble seeing one another in the tall grass. We don't all talk the same language because that would make us more likely to interbreed with foreigners, which would be bad because it would weaken the ties of hunter-gatherer communities. Now, I think what's going on here is a sense that everything about us is explicable in just one level, the biological level. Everything can be, in some important sense, reduced to the one sort of set of things. Now, this is not to say that Darwin's theory is a bad theory. No, not at all. Darwin's theory is a great theory of what it's a theory of, but it's when it's elevated into this universal acid that it seems to me this is where a conflict is between people of faith and those in the uh, ultra-Darwinian um, scientific community. We've got to watch out for ultra-Darwinism. Ultra I think the other one is, second one is what I'm going to call reductionism. That everything about us 
can be reduced simply to our biological constituency, constitution. That um, everything can be reduced to just this one level. I think Richard Dawkins put this quite well when he said, life is just bytes and bytes and bytes of digital information. We, and that means all living things, are survival machines programmed to propagate the digital database that did the programming. So everything about you and me, because he does say this clearly, we are just bytes and bytes of information. So we are machines for preserving genes for the next um, generation. I mean, he goes on then to say, a monkey is a machine that preserves genes up trees. A fish is a machine that preserves genes in the water. A Fitzroyite is a machine that preserves genes in Fitzroy. Um, Stephen might want to think a little bit too with me at a point about the prevalence of that mechanistic metaphor, which is one, of course, that dominates, I suppose, in the artificial intelligence um, community. Is that a metaphor that's a useful one um, to have? Now, last week, John Trinder sent me a rather interesting article. <laughs> you probably can speak better to this than I can, John. But this came from uh, a comment in Nature, how science has shifted our sense of identity. And a particular um, historian here, um, Nathaniel Common, who's a historian of, um, of medicine, was making the argument that again and again, people's identity and worth have been communicated through scientific matters. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Um, in the Victorian period, when anthropology first got developed um, as, a, as a discipline, um, anthropologists went around measuring people's heads, stature, facial angle, curliness of their hair, and so on. They devised a whole range of scientific instruments to do this. An instrument called a trichometer to give you a measure for what the curliness of your hair is. You'll be interested in that, Francis, I think. <laughs> the idea being that somehow human worth could be reduced to the size of the cranium. And so all sorts of racial groups were put in a hierarchy from high to low to do with the highest brain and cranial capacity prevalent in the American South in the era of, the, of, the, uh, of slavery in the Civil War. Prevalent also in immigration restriction because human worth could be reduced to this single measure. The 20th century, I suppose one of those measures was IQ testing. You could actually then pigeonhole a person for their whole life on the basis of a single measure, something called intelligent quotient. In fact, the, the Spearman's rank correlation coefficient was developed by somebody deeply committed to intelligence testing in much the same way that other social stats were developed by eugenicists, perhaps most importantly Francis, Francis Galton. And now we're in an era of everything can be reduced to simply biological processes or neuroprocesses in our minds. The neurochemical firing that goes on in here is all that there really is to us. Now, Nathaniel comforted this little observation at the end of the article that John sent me. Since the Enlightenment, we have tended to define human identity and worth in terms of the values of science itself as if it alone could tell us who we are. That is an odd and blinker notion. 
The problem is scientism. Defining the self only in biological terms tends to obscure other forms of identity. I think we're up against this. This is a really important issue for our own time. And let me tell you where it's particularly important for maybe one or two of you uh, in, in the in the audience tonight. A few years ago, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences published this article, an article by a newly elected uh, member called the Lucretian Swerve, the biological basis of human behavior and the criminal justice system. This was a person who was interested in neurobiology. And uh, what this person was doing was inquiring into the implications of neuroscience for the criminal justice system. John, you'll remember this from a conversation we had before. What do you make of this? The reality is, not only do we have no more free will than a fly or a bacterium, in actuality, we have no more free will than a bowl of sugar. The laws of nature are uniform throughout, and these laws do not accommodate the concept of free will. Now, if that's true, what are the implications for the judge sitting on the bench on Monday morning issuing some judgments? Well, progress in understanding the chemical basis of behavior will make it increasingly untenable to to retain a belief in the concept of free will. To retain any degree of reality, the criminal justice system will need to adjust accordingly. And then I didn't underline the next bit because if you saw it underlined, then you wouldn't concentrate. So you will concentrate now by looking at this. And this is very, very curious. However, to retain a degree of orderliness in society, it will still be necessary to incarcerate individuals found guilty of certain criminal acts. How can they be guilty if they had no free will? But he's afraid to go the whole way because society just would be ungovernable if this were the case. So, Philip, you can still issue that... Oh, but only on these grounds. You understand that. Now, I think if there's a conflict, there's a conflict with scientism here. At least there's something we need to talk about because of the implications of all of this for thinking about everyday social life. Well, I'm going to get pretty close to the end here. Just a couple of other sort of fairly minor points which we can get into in more detail because it's 10 to 8 and my time is just about gone. Some people think that our ethics are also entirely determined by our biological history. That is to say that there is no independent notion of good and evil. It's only what our evolutionary history has thrown up for those things that help us to survive are good, and anything that goes against our survival would be bad. Now, an acquaintance of mine we correspond quite a bit is... uh, is Michael Roos. But Michael Roos had this to say, which if true, I think is a serious challenge of scientism to all of us in this church tonight. Morality is a collective illusion foisted upon us by our genes. It gets the behavior that evolution needs to survive. But there's nothing really ethical about it. It's merely an illusion that is just simply satisfying the reproduction, successful reproduction of the species and a successful adaptation to, to environment. Evolutionary ethics has actually become quite a, a, a large, a large uh, area in, in contemporary philosophy, but a real hero of mine, uh, Marjorie Green, 
I think, uh, who actually did teach briefly at Queen's in the 1960s. In fact, Ken was a student of Marjorie, uh, Ken Yule was a student of Marjorie Green. Uh, I think she's perhaps one of the finest philosophers of biology. Um, now, does she, is this the point? No, maybe she, she, I have another quote from her coming up, but she wrote recently, just prior to her death, um, uh, I've never had any time for Michael Roos after he wrote that silly statement that morality is a collective illusion forced upon us by our genes. We have to think about the genetic components of our behavior. It's absolutely the case. But if morality is reduced simply to survival value, then I think acts of charity, acts of selflessness, things of this sort, might be very difficult to justify since you can't justify them always in the language of survival. And the final one is um, theories of knowledge. I only put this in for the philosophically inclined among you. The rest of you can take a little nap for a minute. But somehow that the selection of ideas and selection of theories can be a guide to what the truth is. Those theories that survive are the ones that are true and those that don't survive are the ones that are false. Seems to me to be problematic problematic because for a start many bad theories survive for a very long time. Many bad theories actually are very pragmatically useful to the extent that some people think that theories aren't about truth at all. They're only instrumental about getting certain jobs done. But I think that Marjorie Green expressed this pretty well and this is the other quote that I had from her. When we say we know something, we are not saying it is true because it will survive. At most we're saying it will survive because it's true. I'll let you ponder that just for a minute or two. But evolutionary ethics, it seems to me, is a problem. What undergirds all of this is a notion that was recently expressed in Encyclopedia of Philosophy that we value things and persons in accordance with their capacity to sustain and maintain survival in evolutionary terms. So I don't value you if you're not able to, nor should I value you if you're not able to sustain and maintain my survival and my genes' survival in my children in evolutionary terms seems to me an impoverished view of ethics and morality and one that I think we've got to be very concerned about. Now, I wanted to finish then just with um, three final voices and um, as far as I'm aware, um, none of these have Christian convictions. But it struck me that Christians do have, do have allies um, in a world where there are others who are resisting a kind of scientistic view of the, of, of the entire world. And I take these from people I've read uh, quite a bit over the years, but I think that they are, uh, they're saying things that I think the church could be very glad, at least I would say, very glad to hear. The first comes from the uh, celebrated literary critic Terry Eagleton. And this is, there's a little humor in this one. I love this quote. Some of you will know it well. Imagine someone holding forth on biology whose only knowledge of the subject is the British Book of Birds and you have a rough idea of what it feels like to read Richard Dawkins on theology. I think this is quite profound. Critics of religion often don't spend much time reading theology or trying to grapple with belief systems or values or ethics or anything of that sort. And I think that Eagleton is right that this is um, terribly unhelpful and misguided, particularly for people who've spent their whole lives trying to struggle with these mysteries of life and so on. But he does go on to say something that I think those who are on the more conservative wing of things might need to hear. 
He says that what happens too often amongst Christians is that faith lapses into a kind of irrationalism. We need to watch that the church doesn't do this. Turning its back on reason altogether. Fundamentalism is, among other things, the faith of those driven into zealotry by a shallow technological rationality which sets all the great spiritual questions cynically to one side and in doing so leaves those questions open to being monopolized by bigots. We've got to be more subtle. We've got to be more aware that there's more to life than technological rationality and not cave into that kind of uh, viewpoint. The second person is, I quoted Michael Roos quite, uh, quite critically early on, um, but Michael grew up a Quaker and still has a real longing, I think, uh, for faith, though unable, I think, to, to come to faith. But he says this, and I think it's true for every one of us, it should be in this church as, as well as it would be for Richard Dawkins. The paradox is that Dawkins should be more modest. He stresses that we're the product of Darwinian evolution. And hence, there's no good reason to think that we have the power to penetrate into the mysteries of the universe. In a way, the Darwinian is back to back with St. Paul. We peer through a glass darkly. That should rule out any form of Christian triumphalism or easy answerism or anything of that sort. We too are peering through a glass darkly. And what would be enormously helpful would be a bit more modesty on all sides of these debates. And then finally, H. Alan Orr, very distinguished biologist whom I, I've learned a great deal from, and I'm going to leave it with this uh, for tonight, and then we'll take some comments and questions. The most disappointing feature is Richard Dawkins's failure to engage religious thought in any serious way. I don't believe that, uh, as far as I'm aware, I don't think Alan Orr has any religious convictions himself, but this reflects Dawkins' cavalier attitude about the quality of religious thinking you will find no serious examination of Christian or Jewish theology in his book, no attempt to follow philosophical debates about the nature of religious propositions, no effort to appreciate the complex history of the interaction between the church and science, and no attempt to understand even the simplest of religious attitudes. But let me finish by saying this. If that was true of Richard Dawkins, we should not be in the same position of someone being able to write about how we respond. No attempt to follow the real debates that are going on in scientific inquiry. Uh, no appreciation of the complex history of how science has developed. And no attempt to understand even the most challenging of scientific attitudes in the modern world. And that's all I have to say. <laughs>